Hi, welcome to Film Suck. I'm Eileen Jones. And I'm Dolores McElroy. And thank you for joining us as we ponder the work of art in the age of crap cinema. Um, I just have a few announcements about schedule revisions. Sorry if it's a little it's a little bit um, um, confusing just at first while we nailed this down. We came to the realization that releasing <laughs> releasing a new episode on Sunday is like releasing it out in the woods where no one is ever gonna <laughs> ever gonna listen. It's like the deadest day of the week. So we have we have we have um, slightly changed our release date. So it's going to be Tuesdays. We're going to be posting starting th- this time. Starting with this episode, it'll be every other week. Um, and this episode will be coming out on Tuesday the 12th. And um, the next show uh, will be released in two weeks on the 26th. And on the alternate weeks, I will be writing and posting for subscriber only. Um, for, for, yes, for the, for the reading enjoyment of subscribers only. Um, little short reviews, little blast of film commentary, et cetera. And that'll be on the alternate Tuesdays starting on um, the 19th. Uh, um, so that's... Yeah, we, we forgot our um, our announcement that in January all of our episodes will be free. Oh yes, yes. So free January is what yeah. we're doing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're just getting it booked um, so that you yeah. can't live without us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the that's cunning the plan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm glad you remembered that one. That's a biggie. Yeah, so we should we should put that in writing somewhere, shouldn't we? That, yes, should. January is free, and then from then on, once you're hooked. Um, we start, um, with the every other episode is free, um, thing. Um, you know, and there's, for this episode, there's some continuity. I think we're going to work on having a little more continuity between episodes, if it's at all possible. Um, that's the plan. Last week, if you recall, if you were, if you were tuning in, we were talking about the legacy of the great, um, 19th century Irish wit, Oscar Wilde. Um, and in relation to film and aesthetics in general, and Wilde helped us, um, you know, begin to think about some of the big questions that the podcast, our podcast wants to tackle. So we call it this season, like what's the relationship between art and politics is socialism compatible with individualism? Why? And why are films today so bad? (laughs) So today we'll be discussing another great wit, the contemporary humorist and citizen of New York city, Fran Lebowitz. Um, so Fran and Oscar Wilde have a lot in common, really, including a love of art and literature and um, definitely a disdain for the general public. But apart from a certain elitism of taste, they share an idiosyncratic political bent that walks kind of this tightrope strung between a belief in talent, which is a thoroughly unfair and undemocratically dispersed quality, and another belief that for art to flourish, wealth must be more evenly distributed. So for Wilde, who we mentioned last week, um, is also the author of an essay titled The Soul of Man Under Socialism. Uh, This took the form of the abolition of private property. For Fran Leibowitz, um, whose critique is more implicit, this is expressed in her lament for the bygone bohemia of late mid-20th century New York City. Um, this was a place, as Fran recounts, where you know you could waitress uh, and or drive a, drive a cab, and these jobs could actually pay the rent. Um, and writers and artists and thinkers were free to smoke inside and um, do other <laughs> wonderful things um, that amount to truly experiencing the glories of metropolitan life. And to get at all this stuff, we're that's we're ta- we're tackling the new Netflix um, docu series. It's a seven part series, seven half hours, about um, Fran Lebowitz in relationship to aspects of New York City life and all of what was just described. It's directed by Martin Scorsese. It's the second 
documentary <laughs> um, work that he's done on her in 2010. He did a, a standalone documentary film called um, Public Speaking. So he cannot stay away from his longtime friend, um, Fran Leibowitz. It's amazing. Um, so this one, I know, it's incredible. And, and it's so touching because they're both they're both elderly now. Mm -hmm. And they both look tiny. Like Mark yeah. Scorsese has really like shrunk into his old man self <laughs> in a kind of dramatic way. And to see them kind of kind of tottering along together is, is kind of moving. Um, I have to say. in his eyebrows. <laughs> yes. The only still thing are all tough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the only thing. In fact, it might be, they might be growing. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so at any rate, obviously the focus, this is a huge focus on Fran Leibowitz as this writer, humorist, public speaker, rock on tour um, figure. Um, and again, uh, all about New York City as a center of art, culture, urban development, et cetera, et cetera. There's lots of different angles that get that get tackled over the course of the show. Hmm. Um, I should mention that just in being on social media more than I want to be, but you know that's life the way it is now. Um, <laughs> I'm really running into which is an, an amazing level of rage at the at the very existence of Fran Leibowitz and pretend it's a city. Ugh. Really, people are just incensed to a point that it's 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 fascinating to me. God help! I us. cannot imagine that in 2010, if if social media had been you know anything like it is now, that if if you know public speaking had come out in 2010, there would have been anything like this kind of reaction. It's it seems very much of our time. It would have seemed like then that you know if you were a fan of a Fran Leibowitz or Scorsese films or New York City or whatever, you would have tuned in, and if not, you'd have not even known it existed, you'd have ignored it entirely. It wouldn't have meant anything to you. But right now, this documentary has clearly really struck a nerve, and it seems to be in a couple of different categories. One, politically, the sense I get is, politically, Fran Leibowitz is just a horror show. Um, <laughs> it's often not spelled out, but just bad politics so, um, so in the, general. So the critics think, right? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, um, yeah but that, that take is that her that her politics are very bad. She certainly is a Bernie hater. Um, really? Which is oh yeah, she's huh. very much on record as saying it's his his he's narcissistic and petty, and that's why he's kind of a spoiler for Hillary Clinton. Oh God, I wish I didn't that. know that. <laughs> yeah, that's that was a rough one for me. I gotta yeah. say. Yeah. Um, but you know, a kind of is this kind of white lady boomer privilege, you know, and that leads you to. Someone who is who's lived an incredibly fabulous life in an increasingly unaffordable Manhattan over decades, and for what is the kind of um, take um, she and and there's a really hilarious take of my favorite is she has she hasn't written a book in how many years that just outrage that she should dare oh to be out in God. the world when she's not writing books, which is you know she started off that was one the you know, writing was her claim to fame when she started, but she, you know. She's long since worked into her whole, you know, her whole routine as, you know, someone who shows up and talks that she's got the most epic case of writer's block. Uh -huh. And she has parlayed this into being a kind of public wit figure, which admittedly, she seems to be one of the, if not the last of them. It's a long tradition. It goes back, it goes back to at least Oscar Wilde, <laughs> you know, sure. same kind of thing. You write a, you write a relatively, you know, small amount of material but you do public speaking to tr huge enthusiastic crowds and you become almost or arguably more famous for witticisms or things mm -hmm. you say or mm -hmm. how you even appear certainly with wild people literally would go to see him just to see how he was dressed 
Right. And, and Fran Leibowitz is also, you know, she's kind of a sharp dresser and very into clothes in her own in her own way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like there's a kind of forgetting or a resentment that there could still be such a fake Dorothy Parker, another one, famously blocked as a writer, mm-hmm. great writer, but produced very, very little, mm-hmm. but as a public persona, as a public wit became more famous for, you know, what she said, what she supposedly said. Right. Yes. What what she was overheard to say at the Algonquin Hotel, whatever. Um, So this is this is a kind of longstanding um, tradition, this this type of figure that admittedly, it does seem as if Fran Leibowitz is at least among, if not the last person standing in this role. And there now seems to be well, we, I don't know if it's a deliberate misunderstanding of this role, but certainly a refusal to try to understand. This is part of what's interesting about Pretended City is you're watching this on fume. You're watching a whole world on fumes. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, and she's talking about that. Like it used to be this way, and now it's, that's all just gone. It's all, it's all kind of morphing out of existence. It, I mean, her job is made very difficult by the fact that satire is nearly impossible today. And maybe that's some of what we're running up against. I think she even, she, you know, speaking of wild before wild, there's Swift, Jonathan Swift. Mm. And, you know, she even says like, I, you know, today, like Jonathan Swift would have his work cut out for him, or it would be nearly impossible. Um, because it is hard to satirize contemporary times are so outlandish, outlandishly ridiculous. It, what slays me about these memes or the, like the hating on. Yeah, they're actually memes. They were memes. Oh, oh, at the God. beginning of the week, already made, already made to grapple with the, the hideous phenomena. My one of my favorite comments is actually someone saying, "I only slightly ironically, it seemed I may be more upset about this than I am about the coup." And I guarantee you that the coup attempt, or the coup attempt, I should say, um, yeah. w- will turn out to be funnier than pretend it's a city. We're so all doomed. You know, we're all doomed. This is. <laughs> And this is, I'm sure these are the same people who loved um, What's His Face's latest release hmm. on Netflix, like Charlie Kaufman. <laughs> you know, I'm sure that has oh. a place in the contemporary world. But, you know, the Fran Lebowitz doc is just a, it's just a, the straw that breaks the camel's back. I don't yeah. even know what to say. It's so absurd because she is um, a marginal figure. She's a boutique taste. She doesn't have any real yeah. sway or platform. Like, chill out. She's a delight. You know, she's she's commenting on things she knows, and she doesn't know a lot. She knows a very uh, narrow slice of life. This really uh-huh. comes to the fore throughout the documentary. Um, Scorsese intercuts some interview footage where Fran is being interviewed by Spike Lee. And mm-hmm. many of the um, exchanges are uh, really painful to watch. <laughs> yeah, he's, Lee, extremely, he's a terrible interviewer. Wow, that is not his interviewer. And he, <laughs> he keeps asking her things like um, to weigh in on sports. And she says she doesn't like sports. And Spike Lee, are you surprised? And then he keeps pushing her on this, like kind of making her, I don't know, like, don't you realize how important sports are? And they've been very mm-hmm. important for, um, you know, black people in particular. And Leibowitz has already said she's a, a tremendous fan of Muhammad Ali, and she's she's a fan of his for as a political figure. And so it's like you don't need to impress us upon her, and you also don't need to know what Fran Leibowitz thinks about sports because she doesn't think anything <laughs> about sports. And it's like you know she's not a philosopher; she's a commentator on uh, her urban world. And if you if you ask much more of her, there there's nothing there to ha- to get. 
and that's okay. <laughs> like, just let, well, let the yes. woman be. <laughs> and again, that's the, that's the fascination is such a, such a minor, as you say, boutique taste should, that the rage should be so intense is what I find fascinating. I, and to some extent I can, I can understand. I would understand it better if she were more famous. And less that. <laughs> yeah. And less obviously, yes. You know, self-deprecating, at least in some ways, though she's super self-confident, but she's, you know, high, she's all willing to talk about how she doesn't know. She, she, you know, again, I know nothing about social media. I don't own a computer. It's all this. I'm out of it. I'm completely out of so many things. Yeah. But I guess, you know, it's understandable to the extent. And again, that this seems like right is so much about right now. Mm-hmm. It's understandable in that here is someone who has had this incredibly, what? I guess we, the, the, the overused word Charm. is privileged life. <laughs> Charmed life. Exactly. Yeah. Charmed life. And it can't. It's almost impossible to imagine it being had now. You know, pe- mm-hmm. when people are struggling even to find the work that they absolutely must have, so they can be horribly overworked at uh, one, you know, soul killing and body killing job or multiple jobs or whatever, because it's it's just become so insane and unworkable the whole system that we are in mm-hmm. that people's lives are just hellish. And this this idea that that you could do what Fran Lebowitz did. Fran Lebowitz goes to New York at eighteen. <laughs> Yeah. By herself, somehow confident she's going to make it. Well, how can she be confident? Because you could, as you know, Dolores pointed out earlier on, you could get a job driving a cab like she did and support yourself just fine. You could do that in all the major cities. Same thing with, you know, San Francisco. Just get some crap waitressing job, some crap little job, and you could live. Not well. You wouldn't have a nice apartment. It would be roach infested. It would be probably in a bad area. All of those things. Mm-hmm. But you could pursue a career as a writer, as a painter, as a musician, as a whatever. And that was still possible. Right. So for me, and and, and not only possible, it, it was great. <laughs> it just sounds great. I mean, the most heartrending thing is to read about her showing up in the 70s in New York when it's still an incredibly exciting place to be. Mm-hmm. And she, the, the, the episode that hurt me the most, even though I was the most fascinated by it, is the one where she's talking about be- becoming great friends with Charles Mingus. <laughs> Yeah, you know the great, great jazz musician that that she becomes friends with because she's writing. His his wife had a little mini publication, I guess, and she was writing for it. it was one of her first jobs. It's so amazing. that's how they get to be friends. Charles Mingus comes to her mother, her parents' house for Thanksgiving, and Charles yeah. Mingus is a difficult personality, really tough, really arrogant, has contempt for most people who aren't geniuses. And she talks about winding up at breakfast with Charles Mingus. You know, uh, his former employee, employer who fired him, Duke Ell- the great Duke Ellington. <laughs> and there they are at a Jewish deli yeah. having breakfast. And this is the kind of thing you can have. This is what haunts my dreams still. I try to get over it. I've tried all my life to get over it. Because I, I, it just, not only did I not get to what I wanted, which was essentially that. Yeah. You know, people from various areas of, shall we say, the arts. You feel embarrassed even saying these words. We talked about this with Oscar Wilde. It's already (laughs) so gone, you feel embarrassed and self-conscious talking about it. I thought I was going to be able to get in there. And then there were going to be all these great just hangouts. There were going to be parties. There were going to be meals out. You were going to be out all the time. You were going to be talking all the time. You were going to be smoking and drinking and hanging out. And this was going to be feel productive, not just pleasurable, but productive in some way that you, you would know these people. And it didn't have to be the 70s. It could have been the 30s. You know, Vincent Minnelli, Oscar <laughs> Levant, the Gershwin. There would be a lot of people, a lot of eras I would have loved to have been in. And it just wasn't there anymore. It was already by the time I 
was, you know, trying to get ready to go to New York, which is, I never wound up going. Uh, it was already, I, you could already feel it was already gone. It was already not a thing. I was one of the last people holding on to an old dream and, and that she got it and got it to such an extent that she can live like so well. Mm -hmm. I think you can see what the rage is. I'm assuming that's the rage. I, I, you know, I guess, I guess it's, uh, to me, it, I'm a little mystified and I'd love to talk more about this New York city. Mm. Um, but I, I, um, it, she seems like that's this is not the correct target for the rage. It's kind of like when the ultra right rages at sports figures and celebrities, but is fine with you know billionaire captains of industry. <laughs> you know, it's mm. like, all right, so Fran owns a three million dollar apartment in New York. You know, fine. Um, she she it, that's not a lot of money in New York. <laughs> it's not like she's got a fleet of servants, and you know maybe you're not a fan, but like I I don't know. I'm glad that Fran Leibowitz is able to support herself because I tremendously enjoy her output. It's just like small potatoes. Like what a focus of ire. Like it's just to me absurd. Um, mm -hmm. And especially because, I mean, she is a wit who I enjoy. So I am glad that she existed and was able mm -hmm. to, you know, write her, her stuff. But maybe back to the idea of New York, which she says, you know, was always unaffordable, no matter what. It used to be more affordable, yes. But if you went there, you had to, you know... Uh, you just took a leap of faith and it's usually cause you were 18, you know, and 18 uh, and probably some sort of, you had some sort of outsider sense of yourself that, that right. what you wanted, you weren't going to be able to get where you were uh -huh. and you weren't going to be able to live fully where you were. That's what tends to drive people <laughs> to the big cities as we know. Absolutely. Certainly what drove me. <laughs> uh, totally. And to me, this is her appeal. She's a very, um, there's something really, uh, cathartic about reading her especially her reflections on growing up in Morristown New Jersey <laughs> mm -hmm. and um because if you were ever an outsider who suspected or thought of themselves as you know smarter than <laughs> the people around them but also probably you know ostracized by the people around mm -hmm. them then you probably uh relate to Fran Lebowitz as you might relate to Oscar Wilde who kind of has mm -hmm. the same um you know flair and yeah they do this through a certain kind of elitism but it's not uh an elitism of class it's an elitism of taste it's still elitism it is you know but they they share this view that um you know, some people are good at some things and some people are not, but they share a profound alienation from the general public. And I know that's hard to reconcile with the leftist bent. And yet I feel like they do. Um, and for me, this is, this is the magic of these people. I did not know Fran's, uh, uh, point of view on Bernie Sanders. That makes me really sad. I'm disappointed that she followed the party mm -hmm. line on that, but I have heard her say many times, you know, Obama was not nearly left enough for her. Um, mm -hmm. I have heard her say like, you know, we should absolutely let every single um, Muslim in uh, to the country. We have all this room <laughs> open up the middle, you know, <laughs> I mean, she mm -hmm. really, and, and now I know that sounds simplistic and it probably is, you know, she's not a political pundit and there is something about like the contemporary demand that every artist from like Lana Del Rey to right. like right. Eminem, the sophisticated 
yes, political have a, organizer right, as well. And it's have a like, nuanced take on like the Israeli-Palestinian yeah. conflict. You know, it's like, <laughs> relax, relax. And I can see if you think Fran is doing harm, uh, frankly, you'd have mm. to make that case to me. I really don't think so. She's an antique by now. And that's kind of the pleasure mm. in, in listening to her. You know, the parade has- Yes, for me, life. it's all about the evocation of a world that's dying slash dead. <laughs> and I like to return <laughs> to that world because I, I, it's not like I feel so damn comfy in this one. I, I sure yeah. as hell don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah and, 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 I mean, don't we all wish we could live that life? It sounds fabulous. You know? Yeah. She, no, that's my, my point is she got, she got it all. Admittedly, at least she started from nothing. You know, she had worked fairly working class parents, though I guess they made Very it working middle class. No, I mean, barely, yeah, but like they, everyone in the Didn't they run a store? I forget what they did. Furniture? What was it? I, I meant yeah, to I think look it up right. again. Furniture. I read it. I think it was a furniture store. I think so. So, you know, not destitute or anything, but, you know, she was going to have to go to New York with what What her father gave her? $200. You know, $100, $200. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, you know, is still a sum at the time she goes, but it's, you know, she's going to have to work crap <laughs> jobs and start from zero and sh- that she gets immediate writing jobs. I mean, immediate. She's working for Interview Magazine. Mm-hmm. Andy Warhol's magazine way early, even though she doesn't get along with Andy Warhol. Apparently, he's willing to to have her there because he thinks she's good. She's you know she's writing for what the is it the Village Voice? She's eventually, doing, she's yeah, doing yeah. She's she's doing a lot of stuff early. Her first first book comes out when she's in her twenties, and her second in her thirties. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, so she, yeah, she she has like almost immediate success, and there's a great fascination in looking at young Fran. <laughs> which I think helps break some of the some of the feeling of like how absolute dare and why her and all this other crazy <laughs> stuff is if you see her young like with you know then there's clips of her being interviewed by everybody and one of them's young David Letterman and and she's so fascinating she just has such a she doesn't yet have a full a full uniform that she's going to wind up having um and you're literally like grappling with she seems so unique like wow there's nobody like you that you nobody has your air she has such a kind of self-command she seems to know absolutely who she is she's able to trade to trade like jokes and witticisms with with letterman to the point that he will just break down laughing there's a really nice moment it's just about timing mm-hmm. where he's about to he's asking her about the writing etc and he's about to clearly ask her about how hard is it? How bad is your writer's block? Blah, blah, blah. He says, do you suffer? And she interrupts him and just says, yes. Yeah. And she <laughs> does it so beautifully that everyone bursts out laughing. And even he keeps laughing. He can't recover himself immediately mm-hmm. just because it was so well delivered. And she's, you could see she's a young, young woman at this yeah. point, but she just has a total sense of self that one can only envy. If only I'd had it. My God. I oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, oh, if I'd had half her confidence, my God. It, you know, in, um, insouciance is always the word that comes to me with Fran. And yeah. And for listeners who've never seen her, she has a very like soft butch presence. Um, you mm-hmm. know, you know, since the seventies, her uniform has been like a pair of blue jeans, uh, yeah. usually like a Brooks Brothers swir- shirt or a, a sweater over it and a blazer some kind of blazer mm. you know these oh, and often years. cowboy boots right like that's right really nice cowboy <laughs> yes. boots. Yeah, yeah yeah so and she's got you know like big um sort of curly hair um she looks very jewish Always parted in the center that and it bushes out on both sides yeah totally totally and she mm. you know she's um she's very uh, like i'm always struck by she's got really intelligent eyes she's got these like very piercing blue eyes um that just like dare you you know <laughs> like i i dare you to say yeah, you know anything to me um and she's um 
So I, for me, I mean that I, I can't, I can't let go of this. <laughs> like, I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry, I poleaxed you. Oh with my this, god, it, with this, it with bothers this. me so much. It's okay for me. This exchange, which she recounts in the documentary, um, encapsulates the politics that are going on here. And I'm not saying it's not without a dose of elitism. It is, but um, mm-hmm. so the story is Fran Lebowitz in adulthood accompanies probably some rich friend to Lake Powell in Utah. And the it's, I don't know, it's sometime be t- before um, New York driver's licenses have pictures on them. Mm-hmm. So the woman, uh, and, uh, but in Utah, driver's licenses do have pictures on them at this point in history. So the woman um, behind the whatever fishing license stand at Lake Powell um, asks Fran for her driver's license. And Fran gives her this, uh, you know, card with no picture. And the woman says, uh, what's the matter? Uh, you don't have any pictures out there in Jew York? And Fran mm-hmm. says, no, that's because we can read. So, so there is a way, you know, okay. Yeah. Of course, Fran is lauding her or lording her intelligence and, you know, superior education, which is, you know, self-taught by the way, um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) over this woman and her erudition. And you can think of all of those things as the hallmarks of, um, you know, an upper class to which Fran does not belong by the way, but like, keep in mind the context, like this hick, immediately identifies her as a Jew um, Mm. and also probably immediately identifies her as a lesbian. And, Mm -hmm. you know, this is Fran's one um, card, her one card, you know, obviously Jews and lesbians don't have a lot of power (laughs) and they certainly don't have a lot of power in Utah, but she's like, but I am smart. I'm smarter than you. (laughs) And so to me, this is the dynamic. And to me, this is very much the dynamic of Oscar Wilde too. It's not that it's not elitist, but you have to remember the power dynamics here. Like Fran is marginalized as hell, you know, (laughs) like she's got one weapon and it's her, it's her smarts and she used Mm it. Um, and she, Mm -hmm. yeah, she was diminishing the woman for her, you know, presumed lack of education. Who knows? Maybe this woman was brilliant. Um, but one, <laughs> one supposes not. <laughs> and so it's not simple to me. And it's also not worth tossing Fran under the bus like she's, I don't know, um, uh, like uh, she's not an aristocrat, you know, she uh, she owns nothing except apparently an apartment now. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. relax. Um mm-hmm. Maybe we'll edit this out, my rant. <laughs> no, no, we will not. Rants always stay in. That is the rule. God, just like get a life, people. <laughs> well, it is all. strange that all of that has been is is that none of that is mentioned. None of that's talked about. You know, in, intense working class start in life. Lesbian Jew. None of that. None of that counts in her favor. Uh, of course it's, not. It's, it's it's a generational hatred, and it's a, and it's a late class hate. Now she has it all, and and why I demand to know why is, is the kind of thing. Uh huh. Um. I guess again, it's a weird thing. Given the you know insane and appalling celebrity culture we have now, that you'd pick on. <laughs> does seem kind of funny, but at any rate, at any rate, this yeah. soon too shall pass, and people will get over this. But it's but true. you know, I I also think it's crucial that she represents the figure of the mordant naysayer in American culture, which we Uh, always need more of. (laughs) And we always only have a few. Hmm. And it really is like, there's so much, there's such a heavy demand in mainstream American culture for you to affirm, accept, embrace whatever the huge going thing is. And it is, and and in fact, it's, I admit it, it can be really hard to resist whatever the current line is on life and morality and everything else. 
because it's so everywhere all of a sudden. I, you know, I'm old enough to remember when smoking was common, and then all of a sudden it was like you spat in the face of Christ himself. If you lit up a cigarette in the Bay Area, and it was watching what happened was so bizarre. I can absolutely understand the it'll kill you. These are bad for you. Corporations sold us a horrible bill of goods about how they weren't harmful to your health. Mm -hmm. All horrible. Mm -hmm. But the idea that no one can ever light up a cigarette <laughs> again <laughs> without being some sort of moral deviant yeah. is, is bizarro. And the way it just swept the country, it was just like all of a sudden, that was just the most heinous. If I, I I can remember myself late, you know, recently with you, in fact, Laura, yes. out, you know, going out to smoke outside of a party. I've had a, a cigarette a year, maybe. I mean, I don't smoke, right? But, but it's fun occasionally. And oh my God, people came out of the party looking at us like we were. I'm trying to think of what's bad enough. We were killing I, a puppy. We were, I don't know. I don't know. Something <laughs> <Yeah>. appalling. <laughs> so it's, yeah. I'm just using that to illustrate. Well, both, both that this this is what happens in American culture, these waves of now this is the new truth and suddenly everyone's on board in the most amazing way. And she's just there saying no. Yeah. And this includes with smoking and a whole lot of other things. It is like, I smoke, I started smoking at 12, which yeah. I would love to get the backstory on that one. She didn't explain. <laughs> she said um, she used to drink, by the way, like heavily in high school and she's never, she never drank. And then again. she stopped drinking. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Um, Cause she drank so much. She said she, yeah, she drank her quota or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and she was thrown out of high school, which is yes. also a nice, a nice, a nice moment there to hear about. Yeah. But at any rate, so she's just, yes, I smoke and she will, you know, I think you should be able to smoke. And she makes an even more to me, important point that smoking and drinking and hanging out, that's the history of, of art, art and creativity. <laughs> and, you know, she, she, she actually got to do a little rant at, at Michael Bloomberg, who was behind the smoking ban in New York. And, and, and she was just like, this is what you're up. Yeah, this is what you're coming at. It's mm -hmm. not just the smoking per se. It's the hangouts of people who are creative and who, who were into pleasure, you know, which is another thing that's always under attack in America. My God, trying to, you know, so many people, you try to go to a party and get a drink. So I, <laughs> I go to, I, you know, the last, some of the last parties I've been to, all the lights on bright, yes. no music, a friend and I, constantly, you know, you're offered tepid water or some sort of fucking soda. Yeah, and it's just yeah. like, what? If I didn't bring the liquor, I couldn't get any. It's right. just, it is a weird, we're in a weird cultural time. I'm sorry. And she's just there, but she's been there for how many decades to just be like, nope, that's stupid. Yeah. I'm not doing that. I would hate that. So she's even knowing in America what you like and don't like, what you believe in and don't believe in, and being able to hang on to it. I don't think we give enough credit because so many people are such rank conformists and that includes in politics. God, that is you so know, true. The whole, the whole, I'm, I'm a real radical. I, I say exactly what everyone else says in my little social set, right. my little club of the left. It's so appalling. It's so appalling that we can't get past. We talked about this with under, with Oscar Wilde again. Yes. This kind of conformity is an America. It's, it's a human disease, but it seems a particularly acute American disease. People are, are unwilling to stand outside and look at a thing and say, well, actually, no, I think that's dumb. Right, right. No. So even if she's doing it in an entertainer way, to me, it's an entirely welcome thing. Oh, my God. I, I love to see it. It, and and to like hear her take on wellness, which oh is yeah, <laughs> wellness. And she's like, yes. you know, I, and she's like, obviously, this is something you buy. <laughs> you know, yeah. you, you buy oh, yeah, all about how this is all like some sort of extra 
health yeah. that you, you can purchase. <laughs> and now everyone is supposed to purchase it because it's become a moral thing. Mm-hmm. Yes, and she traces it back to like, again, generate. if you can look at this generationally and see, you know, what health meant at different times, we've, we've entered a new crazed era. It right. doesn't make any damn sense. Yeah. Right. And yeah. She, said, she said, you know, some things you can understand um, how mm. they're not good for you. She's like, smoking, for instance, how people ever thought like, yeah, let me mm. inhale this exhaust into my lungs. <laughs> into sure, my lungs. Obviously. Surely that will be fine. You know, she's not defending <laughs> smoking as, uh, you know, as um, not harmful. She knows, obviously, mm. that you. But she says, meat, for instance. I could understand how people did not realize that eating a lot of red meat is, is bad for you. She said, you know, my, my parents are first generation Americans, um, for them, uh, you know, the, the, the sons and daughters of immigrants, um, mm-hmm. meat, good, <laughs> you know, it's good. Good and meat really good. Right. <laughs> you know, like an absolute, like, you know, feast, um, to have some meat on your table. Um, yes. And just to note again, you know, depending on exactly when you're playing, how much you, or how little you could get meat was a real thing. Like a right, real thing. Right. That a chicken in every pot campaign slogan used to be about how few people could have chicken. Oh, I don't even know that. Now that you mention that, I feel oh, like yeah. that's somewhere. Sort of be like. Oh, yeah, yeah. Meat. Meat was a thing. You know, depending on how poor you were, it was how how rarely you had it, how little you had well, compared to the other portions of your meal. It was probably, um, no, it was much healthier, but nobody knew. Right, right, <laughs> nobody <right>. knew. <laughs> and like, maybe not that healthy if like your meatless soup consisted of like cabbage, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, but I mean, she's, and she's like obviously very aware that wellness is a racket for the rich. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, this is, this is so refreshing because we do think of it as a moral thing. And she has hilarious anecdotes about presenting, you know, children of friends, obviously very well-to-do friends with candy as a gift. And they act horrified, you know, like she's Mm -hmm. given them a piece of, I don't know, pornography, a crack pipe. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And And again, totally different because when she was a kid and when I was a kid, little, that's true. When you left the dentist, you got a sucker. Gave you candy. Me too. Yeah. I, I got candy at the oh, doctor. And the, yeah, I was born in the eighties. Yeah. For the listeners who can't tell, I don't know. Um, but you know, yeah, it's not that we knew. Can, you know, candy. Like she said, can't. They knew candy was bad for your teeth, but they yeah. didn't think of sugar as um, the devil. <laughs> but, <laughs> we both say it at the same time. That's yeah, true. yeah. Oh God. <laughs> and it's so refreshing yeah. to have someone you know say that out loud um, because it's true. These days, you have to solemnly ask people like what do you eat what do you not eat mm-hmm. like throwing a dinner party is very fraught <laughs> you know very mm-hmm. very fraught not that we have mm-hmm. dinner parties anymore um we're in a pandemic right, exactly Again, yeah another bygone delight you yeah. Know, yeah. that one reads about or here's Fred, or here's fred leibowitz talk about right. all the great dinners all the great meals oh my god oh god how i long for it but uh, oh Okay, Eileen, I wanted to, this is just like, I haven't even really thought this through, but I was thinking about this moment in the, uh, that Fran is at the end of, and the bohemia, I I surmise from reading her work that she used Mm -hmm. to live in the village. Then I think she lived in Mm -hmm. Midtown for a long time, and I I have no idea where she lives now. Um, Mm -hmm. But I... uh, But so I get the sense that, you know, in her village years, obviously, like you said, she was part of this exciting bohemian set that included Charles Mingus and Andy Warhol. Um, And I was thinking about this. I was like, 
the, to me, the beauty of this uh, and the charge is that like, wow, Mingus hung out with Fran Lebowitz, you know, that's hilarious mm-hmm. and wonderful. Um, and this, this to me is the charm of the myth of the village is, you know, on one night, the village vanguard might have Mingus the next night, you know, Dylan the next night, like mm-hmm. a 19 year old Barbara Streisand. It was just like mm-hmm. a crazy time. And it seems like you need and this is my, I'm pulling this out of my butt, but I feel like you need a mass culture for mm-hmm. people to come together in a counterculture that is somehow actually kind of unified. So it's like, if you have a mainstream, then everyone who's outside of the mainstream sort of hangs out together. And right. I kind of get the sense that this has broken apart, certainly for economic reasons, you know, like artists can't live in the same uh, don't necessarily all get to live in the same place or at least not mm-hmm. artists of different races. Um, mm-hmm. And so I just, I, I get the sense like everything's more atomized now because, mm-hmm. because Manhattan is, can only be occupied by rich people. Um, and mm-hmm. now, you know, Brooklyn's on that same path. Right. Um, exactly. You keep moving further out and where can you be? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Everyone's in yeah, like yeah, yeah. Astoria, but I'm sure Astoria is on its way, you know, to becoming too expensive too. And mm-hmm. New Yorkers who are listening, you're probably more up on the neighborhoods. Well, Maybe. we know, but it's the same in the San Francisco Bay Area. When I got there, people would all, were already telling me stories, and that was decades ago, of like, oh, you used to be able to yeah. come and live in North Beach <laughs> yes. when it was still considered really the Italian section. But you could, again, they would tell me, you could, on a, on a waiter's salary, you could live really nice in an apartment and be an artist and blah, blah, blah. And that's all over now. That was even, that was even way before, you know, the impossible levels of Bay Area, which are what rivaled New York's. Absolutely. So the same thing, once upon a time, great to be an aspiring writer, journalist, painter, musician, whatever, all of these creative and expressive things, you could flock your way to the Bay Area. And that's just seems totally over now, right? It's just, where do you go? Now you go to places where, what? Buffalo had a little comeback, supposedly, in part because artists started coming here because it's already over, by the way, if you were thinking of coming to Buffalo. Yeah. Um, because the rents were so cheap. Yeah. Um, Detroit. You know, so there's, but it's, but it's the split up. You're right. Even in that movement, which is happening, has been happening. It's still in multiple cities, right? There's no sense of, well, obviously if you're anywhere in the East, you're going to go, you're probably going to go to New York. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe you're going to go to LA or Bay Area very much second, thirdly. And, and also, New York, where you were going to go. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, and I can't prove this. It's just like a feeling. But I I feel like culturally, we're also everyone stays in their lane. So I I don't get the sense from, you know, my friends who are living as artists in New York or the New York. Yes. Who are they mixing with from other fields? They're not. Um, And it's not just other disciplines. It's like, um, you know, do my composer friends um, in new music go see cutting edge, like, you know, hip hop. No, you know, they might like to, but I just don't get the sense that these, the groups don't mix as much. And maybe no, they don't. Oh, no, it's because it's, it, that's what makes it such a fascination. I'm, you know, I'm going to be, I hope I'm going to be reviewing for Jacobin, uh, a movie called One Night in Miami. Mm-hmm. And it's about the Sonny Liston, then Cassius Clay fight. He changes his name shortly after to Muhammad Ali. But it's really about the get together of four friends who are all active in the civil rights movement to varying degrees. So it's Muhammad Ali. Um, uh, Malcolm X, Jim Brown, the football player, and Sam Cooke, the singer. Amazing. <laughs> right? 
And and you could have added James Baldwin, the writer, and you could have you could have kept adding Marlon Brando, the actor, and you could you know because these people all knew each other. They were yeah. all involved, and they all met, and they all talked, and they all went to parties, and they all. This is exactly what I would say is missing. Mm-hmm. Is you just don't even re- I don't even read about you know the amazing gatherings of people from different highly expressive walks of life. They could even pull in you know strong political activism. You just don't read about it. Right. Is ta- right. Who's Taylor Swift hanging out with? For oh, my God. No. <laughs> you know, it just ain't happening. And, but it, it was so normal then. I mean, I was reading. I read all biographies. It's idiotic. I was reading the biography of Rosemary Clooney, who's because of White Christmas, you know, she's considered the squarest of all squares <laughs> of singers. As a young woman, she was living the life in New York. Marlon Brando was coming to her. Everyone was coming to her party. She loved to party. Uh, and it was just like the people she described walking through the door from all different creative fields was just like, oh, my God, just put me there. And it's just it just that was a that was how clearly how Fran Leibowitz wound up mm-hmm. just being introduced here, introduced there. It was if you could get any kind of foot in the door, make any kind of tiny name for yourself, you were brought in and you met generations of great people. Exactly. And that's exactly what you're like. Where do I go for that? And then, and I also think the art of conversation was, um, <laughs> you know, it was an art. It was it was something that was given a lot more weight. I, I once heard Fran talk at, um, you know, she gave some talk somewhere and she basically said, you know, I, I kind of got off the bus from Morristown, New Jersey in Manhattan mm-hmm. and I went right to Max's Kansas City, one of the great mm-hmm. nightclubs of, of the era where Andy Warhol used to hang out. And, you know, you could see... Today, I wondered, like, can I imagine, is there a hang where all the great Where would I go? Exactly. (laughs) Where have I talked great enough? I could work my way in. You know, no. Yeah, where would you go? Right, right. Like, there's no Algonquin round table. (laughs) That's for sure. And because it's not the art of speaking and, and words in general, even though we're awash in them, are not really valued. And it's not. I know. Isn't it hilarious? Here we are podcasting. We're doing nothing. Nothing but blathering. Everybody's podcasting, and yet conversation is not a thing. I feel this so acutely. I come from a family of huge talkers. Yes. We used to (laughs) literally sit around the kitchen table by the hour and talk. Just a family. We all knew, practically knew a lot of each other's stories. We still, we love to tell very long anecdotes. Now, try (laughs) telling someone a very long anecdote. Sentence two. (laughs) Their phone, you know, beeps. There's something happens. I'm telling you, their eyes wander. No one wants to hear your fucking long anecdote. It doesn't matter how funny, how it builds towards some fantastic conclusion. It, you'll never get to the end of it. Even with my, some of my closest friends, I noticed. It's just not a thing now. Nobody wants to sit there and hear you tell a stemwinder story with a huge punchline. Mm-mm. That's not happening. I'm, I, that's devastating to me um, because even if the content isn't, you know, who cares if you heard it a million times? To me, that is the most comforting thing in the world is to have, you know, someone I like tell me a story or even with my family who, you know, um, you know, families are difficult, but it's no, the moments true. where they're not difficult is where people are actually speaking to one another. And it really oh, is and where you can feel like a real family pride. It's like, wow, we, we really, we <laughs> one of the Irish call it the crack. We're really good at, we're really good at the crack. We're really good at the entertaining talk and, you know, then add, you know, add great food and drinks and if it's, only cigarettes and right. all of a sudden now it's a party you know now you can see a kind of basic level human enjoyment that was totally available to all and they could reach a very high peak and of course you know Fran Lebowitz clearly becomes famous you know for good talk she's fabulous at talking she's and this a- becomes her new career 
And I- I'm jealous. <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> How I know. wonderful mm-hmm. to just oh. get paid for public speaking and like do these Q and A's where people are like, who's your favorite movie star? You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> by the way, I once, I, at, I once, Oh my God. So side note, this was so punishing. Poor Fran was booked to do a gig at Cal Performances at Zellerbach Hall mm-hmm. on the Berkeley campus. Cal Performances is, um, it's like linked to UC Berkeley. So mm-hmm. I know this was a contractual obligation. Um, she had to like speak with the students for an hour before her gig. Oh dear God. Oh my God. <laughs> and now of course I was I, like, my eyes were popping out of my head for some reason, some Cal performances person emailed the film department and it literally, mm-hmm. the, the headline of the email was like, share us or like t- take a smoke break with Fran Leibowitz. <laughs> and I was oh like, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> You know, it was me and like eight of my most awkward um, companions. No, I mean, really, I, like a lot of people who came were my friends and they're great, but we were all awkward as hell. What what on earth are we going to say to friendly boys? So we, mm-hmm. we sat around this sterile table in this green room. It was oh, one dear. of the most punishing experiences of my life. Um, oh, no. And we kind of asked her about film genres and she had a lot, of, she had interesting things to say, but I remember asking her, um, do you have a favorite movie star and she said I don't know she said whenever anyone asks you your favorite they want to tell you their favorite so who's your favorite mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said mm-hmm. well uh, my current obsession is Catherine Deneuve and she looked at me very pointedly and she said that's a good movie star <laughs> <laughs> and I knew it like I just know from following Fran enough throughout the throughout the years she's a thing for blondes a, a real thing uh. for ice and blondes and I was like I know you like, I know you like Deneuve um, <laughs> But anyway, she's a huge film fan. You know, she writes about, they used to go to like, after the clubs, you'd go to MoMA for a screening, you know, you'd go to the village and, you know, um, so in movie going for her is not something she does anymore. (laughs) Right. I mean, she did come out with that thing that she, she was obsessed with, you know, you know, AIP films, American International Production, is that right? Production? Yes. You know, the famous, the famous, you know, B, C, Z level. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. Independently made films. And that was her huge, huge fave. And she covered those as as like her favorite films. So that was, that was a nice move. There's such a sweet moment. So I think she covered these films. Eileen, correct me if I'm wrong, for her Mm. column in The Village Voice. Yes. Am I right about that? Yes. Okay. Yes, yes. Um, right. So there was a really cute moment because, you know, Scorsese got his start. Doing, start, right. Uh, like, doing you know, Boxcar Roger. Bertha. Yes, Boxcar yeah, Bertha. For Roger Corman. For Roger Corman, yeah. right. And she's like, yeah. you know, I reviewed that film. I remember it. And so she reviewed, <laughs> yeah. like, a, you know, an early Scorsese <laughs> under this right. circumstance, which is really right. adorable. Um, but yeah, I, but she says, you know, she doesn't go to the movies so much now. Um, except apparently to see the leopard directed by Visconti. Oh, I know. <laughs> Has a prominent place in the documentary. The it leopard, does. Yeah. It's bizarre. Um, but she, she's, you know, she says today, you know, they're have people are eat, eating like a four course meal. They're on their phones and she's not wrong. Like I, I mean, I, I go to the movies in Oakland, which are still great. You know, the shout out to the Grand Lake Theater, which is an old theater. It's wonderful. It's in a, you know, very like wonderful old neighborhood, um, mm-hmm. uh, Lakeshore. But I went to the suburbs to spend time with my mom um, outside of Chicago. And their movie theaters are so freakish. They're like on steroids and all of the the seats recline, you know, in the multiplex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they Almost, like, yeah. they bring you like wings. <laughs> 
right. not just popcorn, but you can get like a burger, like a pulled pork mm-hmm. sandwich. Like, and by the way, that is disgusting to sit there with like, with like 40 people eating wings right next to you. <laughs> yeah, it's weird in the seating. I mean, it made sense if you went there was, a, I forget the name of the one in, um, Austin, I think it was, where where there were tables. You sat at tables, like a kind of semi nightclub tables oh, and weird. could eat. Weird. And it was a movie. And then there was another one where where they had like, yeah, it was more like they just had a long, long table arrangement in front of you. Right. And yeah, but sitting next to people in stadium seating and, and eating huge, that's that is a little bit it's, yeah. it's overwhelming. But, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's not that Fran so segue <laughs> she yeah. is you know one of the episodes is very much invested in pleasure and mm-hmm. and guilty pleasures and her um refusal to believe in the validity of the phrase guilty pleasure <laughs> mm-hmm. because she doesn't think you should feel guilty for your pleasures and she's always like you know things that people talk about as guilty pleasures like what reading a mystery novel you know she's <laughs> like i i don't feel guilty for this <laughs> um yeah And, and, you know, she's always talking about the importance of fun. And she says, you know, the older I get, it's like, you know, Fran, go ahead, have all the fun you want. And I suppose that maybe this is what people are angry about. And it's a sign of her decadence. But, you know, let's be careful, because this is kind of our thread. What is the role of, um, you know, the left and uh, art and and Mm -hmm. sort of art's role in potentially inspiring or encouraging certain political outcomes. The moment the left gets so sanctimonious that it cannot enjoy, um, I don't know, a good mystery novel, uh, a witticism, um, we're going to lose everyone. You know, it's no fun. It is no fun to, I don't want to hang out with the school moms. (laughs) So I just, this happens. I feel like this happens every time in history, you know, Mm. like the, the left gets very, um, I just, all I can say is sanctimonious and moralistic. And I'm not saying there's nothing at stake. There's a lot at stake, but the way to inspire people is not to shut down pleasure. It's not to make pleasure bad. Um, and of course we can define pleasure. You know, if you're, if you get pleasure from exploiting hardworking people financially, no, that is not a pleasure to condone, <laughs> but enjoying, enjoying art, enjoying music, enjoying things that, um, could easily be labeled frivolous. I don't want to be on the side that's against that. Mm-hmm. You know, well, I want to be on the because pro enjoyment side because otherwise right. you're against life. Like, right. Right, 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 you're against life, and that inspires no one. And all of these places of enjoyment and pleasure are places for possibility. They make room. They expand little pockets in your daily life, which, if it's anything like mine, is a an absolute grind. And they're the one time that you can maybe imagine something else. <laughs> so don't shit on pleasure. I don't. It's not well, a good tactic. You don't have to. You don't have to what? You don't have to corral people into it. <laughs> they they want to go. They wish they, exactly. they should at least because they were killing that sense. And 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 Fran Leibowitz has a has a good point about what usually guilty pleasure is about. It's not high culture. It's not good for you. Right. You know, you like you like something that shows you have bad taste, perhaps. So a guilty pleasure is often a movie that's, you know, considered a bad movie. Or you like a star that's considered someone who can't act and is sort of trashy or whatever. <laughs> it's that kind of thing. It's often high culture, good, good taste project, which is to me, it's amazing how often we fall into a kind of weird 
morality of that kind of pleasure and every other kind of morality. Why, why, how we got to be the stiff-necked, you know, bores. I don't know. I, that, just, that just distresses me beyond words. Why aren't we the tolerant <laughs> uh, partiers everybody in? I don't understand. Exactly. I literally, I don't, I don't know how we got here. I, I, I'm baffled by it all the time. Like, right. I don't, I don't see how we got here. Like, I, to me, like, the left should want to be the most cosmopolitan of places you know there there is room for everyone and you know for everyone like we need to throw the best party and I don't mean that in terms of just everyone getting you know wasted and whatever but it's like the party that or the side or the whatever that cracks the the pleasure um mm-hmm. you know principle I don't know <laughs> it's too Freudian um <laughs> the, <laughs> the side that can really court pleasure and expand it into things that will encourage the flourishing of life is the side that wins I think and so I just you know all of this coming down with the hammer because you know Fran's a mainstream liberal liberal boomer what a what a waste you know what a, talk about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. um mm-hmm. so come at me <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think, I think. And of, of all episodes, my big worry was everyone's going to be like, God, this is exact. This is so exactly niche. Who really cares about this? And instead to see this outburst of absolute yes, we rage. Fran. <laughs> yes, we and Fran. we come up with, yes, we Fran. And it's like, oh man, this is going to get ugly. Yeah. If we can't yeah. tolerate Fran Leibowitz, how the hell are you going to have a broad I mean, coalition exactly. of people? Talk about, oh, you know, and how often do you feel, do you want to just say, come on, can you be a human? Let, you, I see this all the time. There'll be a sane voice saying, can't you let people enjoy something? This is actually a phrase you see on social media because yeah. it's so hard to like, like anything, enjoy anything, not be in a constant cramped state of rebuking somebody for some damn thing. It's just, it's just a misery and no one can take any more misery. We're in such dire straits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we are. That it just seems like that's why I go that way. Why? So I, I, again, I, I just, I feel my outsider status increasing and it's always waxed and waned through my whole life, but it's increasing and increasing in an alarming way. Yeah. I don't get what people want. What's your end game? Where are we headed here? What, how, how are you envisioning you know, as much as people are, seem suspicious of utopias, because, of course, it's fun to imagine yes. a utopian situation, so you wouldn't want to have that. Yeah. Um, I, why, I wish we would bring it back. Like, what are you thinking? Would your, what, what would life be like? How would it be improved? How would it be beyond just the obvious? Obviously, we want, you know, we want health care. We want all of the, I'm, that's not what I'm talking about. It's like, what does the way of life look like? Yes. And when no one can see it, you're not going to persuade a lot of people and no one can see it. As far as I can tell, there's a tiny sliver of people and everyone else is like, yeah, that doesn't sound good to me. Or I don't know what you're talking about. It's, I I don't even know because they're, they, they are very invested in uh, paradoxically in authenticity and the importance of work. So it's like Mm -hmm. these perfect opinions and ways of being should proceed from you naturally if you're a quote good person. Um, Mm -hmm. But they also say like it requires a tremendous amount of work to be X, Y, and Z. And so Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, it's, but if, if someone isn't a hundred percent aligned with your point of view, then they're condemned. I don't, I don't know what to say. I mean, but pleasure, pleasure is 
central. It's not, it's not, it's not a mere frivolity. And if you have nothing to offer people, even, even the, you, you've got nothing to draw them with. Yeah. So instead we're flogging everybody. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of moralizing flogging and, and that's never going to build huge numbers. I, I just can't see it ever happening. And it's, I'm not seeing it making any headway. So it's just been so depressing yeah. to see the, the worlds I, I hoped for just, just crumbling. And when we don't seem to have any, any, we can't get together and imagine together a world. And that is really grim. That's exactly. Really grim. This ain't going to build a mass movement. And, yeah. you know, I mean, one of the big questions that we keep coming back mm. to is can art be used in the service of a mass movement? Um, especially now when we don't really have such a thing as a mass culture, we have many like mm-hmm. atomized niche cultures. Um, so we're, we're going to think about this. <laughs> yeah. Go well, and it. you know, it's, it's covered and it's just, or alluded to anyway, in the last, especially in the last, um, episode of the, of pretend it's a city where you it's, it's kind of slightly melancholy, um, visiting of, of bookstores and talking about the love of reading and book culture and magazines that everybody read. And, and the phrase that Fran Leibowitz uses is this, this is a city that used to be a wash in newsprint. You saw a newspaper everywhere. It was it was in the trash cans. It was on the streets. It was on the subway seats. It was you just you were in a world of of reading that was shared that was mass, and so you could feel like everyone could be have sharing these experiences a lot all the time every day, mm-hmm. and that the breakdown of that leaves us where when we want to build a mass movement, what are what are other than arguing political points which which is gets very angry and very dead endy it seems like a lot what do, what do we have that we can all unite around and we have fewer and fewer things and and certainly art is not it even, even what is i think that's what what Leibowitz picks as the worst of the of the what of the arts is the what we usually call art like the world of painting the world of you know high art fine arts because it's it's just become a, a money racket altogether and it's not an exciting world that's going to draw anybody who's interested in the visual arts shall we say yeah she's got so, this great line where she says people went at an art auction when they unveil a picasso they don't applaud for the picasso they applaud yeah. when someone buys the picasso yeah, for a tremendously the, the large amount of money the millions yeah. and millions and millions that's what gets the round of applause and she's yeah. like that's 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 where we're at yeah um, with that branch of the arts and it does seem like you know we are crossing one after another off the list even you know our our biggest concern here is is cinema like it just seems like we're watching it dwindle obviously COVID hasn't helped this theater shut down and blah 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 (laughs) but even before then we were watching the excitement just just wither um and it was one of of course you know According to you know Lenin, anyway, it was the most important um, of of the mass communication slash arts. It was going to be a linchpin, and we just don't. We don't even. I don't even see an expression of desire, at least on the in, among the leftists I read or see, calling for we have to reharness mass media and and the arts. We have to. We have to find some other ways of persuading people mm-hmm. that you know, this is worth investing in these ideas, these beliefs, we should be avidly talking about it. We should be seeing these things represented yes, um, in a vivid way that gets you excited and makes you want to be part of it. And we don't, we don't even try. I don't, we're not much, <laughs> I don't, at least maybe I'm, maybe there's somewhere that people are seeing this and I'm not reading it or seeing it, but I'm sure not. 
Yeah, I, I don't I don't see much of it. It seems to always be the more ham fisted um, attempt to present ideologically correct content, which is not yes. exciting. Um, and it, I mean, interestingly, um, so Leibowitz has a, an anecdote about um, the flip side, which is when good art is employed for um, terrifying fascist means. Right. And, uh, the you know, everyone's favorite example, Lenny Riefenstahl. <laughs> And Fran was invited to a dinner party in the 70s when Riefenstahl released her book of photography called The Last of the Nuba, which is a a book of very stunning photographs of um, a group of people in Africa. And this, um, Susan Sontag writes about this at length in in a piece called Fascinating Fascism. But what this book did for Riefenstahl was kind of rehab her reputation. Right. And um, so, you know, someone, someone obviously thought it would be funny to... To invite Fran Leibowitz to a dinner party with Lenny Riefenstahl, and Fran refused. Good for Fran. Um, mm. And you know that the person who organized the dinner party said, "Well, you have to admit she's a she's a, an excellent artist." And Fran said, "Yeah, of course she is. Uh, that's why it's you know all the worse." <laughs> so it's not that. Um, you know, good or bad art, personally, I do not think aligns one way or another with the right or the left. There can be very mm-hmm. good art that does very bad things. <laughs> and mm-hmm. as we see, yeah. there's tons of terrible art that tries to do good things. Um, so we're, we're going to talk about this a little more in our next episode, which is premiering in two weeks. We're skipping a week. We gave you an extra episode this week just because we felt like it. Um, <laughs> yeah, which we will do on occasion. Yeah. <laughs> and all of January is free. Um, mm-hmm. So next week, we're going to talk about um, Nazis in the movies. Um, hopefully, there will be fewer Nazis on the evening news, but we're not holding our breath. Um, so, questions we'll ponder include Is there such a thing as a fascist aesthetic? Is so, if so, what is it? Um, and then we're really thinking thinking about like why are fascists, especially Nazis in particular, who in reality condemned all the interesting art of their day, why in the movies, especially the movies made by the Allied powers, frequently um, why do the movies frequently show Nazis as dandified aesthetes? Um, mm-hmm. You know, this is true of uh, Gilda. You just said aesthetes, which I love. <laughs> <laughs> Is that okay? Yeah, no, I love it. Go okay. ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> um, so, well, you know, we'll talk about um, uh, uh, Balin, what's his face, in Gilda, um, right. Robert Munson. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and, right. and, the husband of Gilda. Who's, yeah, 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 Casablanca, yeah. Rossellini's Rome up mm-hmm. in City, and anything mm-hmm. else we think of. And um, this came up because we were talking about how – how do you go from even like triumph of the will and uh, you know, the monumentalism. And personally, I think the Nazi aesthetic is like hideous kitsch, but there is something Mm -hmm. impressive or trying to be impressive about it. How do you Mm -hmm. go from that to the sort of, you know, aggressively bad taste of the Trump regime, which is, it's like a pale imitation of the Nazis, which was already in a really bad imitation of like, I don't know, ancient Rome, you know, something like Mm -hmm. that. Um, so stay tuned for <laughs> for the answer. We try to thrash yeah. through the madness of all that. Yes. yes. Yeah. So the, the, um, go for it, I mean. <laughs> no, no, carry on, carry on. Well, no, you the, that's going to be, uh, so that's our fascinating fascism episode coming up on January 26th. Yes, and I think that wraps up. I think we've I think we've covered Fran. I think we have. City. <laughs> <laughs> 
So chew on that. <laughs> Haters, I'm Eileen Jones. Um, I'm Dolores McElroy. Please don't email me. <laughs> but we do thank you for, for we listening. We thank you for listening to Film Suck. Until <laughs> next time. Bye.